I was 16, and ski racing was my whole identity. And not to brag or flex or anything, but I was very good. This is Sophie. In high school, Sophie dominated the slopes until one unsuspecting race. So it was a very menial race to me. Like, And it was a small mountain. It didn't really mean a lot. It wasn't going to be a hard course. It was in my specialty, which was slalom. The only hiccup in that was it was a bad snow season. Sophie had devoted much of her life to skiing. But when it's a bad snow season, even the most advanced skiers can have trouble on the slopes. I came out of the start gate, and the snow was just tricky. And I came around, and it was a left-footer turn. And all of a sudden, I hit this burr of snow, and my entire body just, like, slingshots up into the air. And I heard a pop, and I felt a pop. And then I fell on the ground on my side. And I can feel something's not right in my knee, but the pain didn't rush in at that point. And then I made the very, very not smart decision of rolling over onto my other side to try and get up. And as soon as I did, my knee locked back into place and everything just went ripping through. I just felt so much pain. I hadn't just torn my ACL, I had torn my MCL, and then I had a meniscus tear at the same time. And I had a fractured tibia amphibia. So it was a plethora of injuries that just went into this tiny, microscopic second of my life. Sophie had to put her skis on the shelf indefinitely. Knee injuries, particularly ACL tears, are twice as likely to occur in female athletes, and recovery can take many months. I was feeling very alone and very scared. Sophie met with Dr. Martha Murray, orthopedic surgeon-in-chief at Boston Children's Orthopedic Center. Here's Sophie recounting the rest of her journey towards recovery. Dr. Murray definitely recognized my fear. It felt like the fate of my skiing success was in her hands. And that was a little scary to give up control in that sense, because you have to have a lot of trust in that person. The first surgery was the traditional ACL surgery. So I did rehabilitation for probably about three months or so. And then over the summer, I was on my own. I think I finally got back on skis sometime around December. I was a freshman in college. I remember this training run and it was slalom. I was getting thrown all over the course because the snow was bad again. It clumps up into these little golf balls. We call them death cookies. They skitter you all over the place. I go and I'm about to miss a gate and so I just slam on the brakes and my right foot is down and all of a sudden my leg just like buckles. There goes the ACL, the PCL, the meniscus. And I'm just standing there and I'm like, oh my God, I just did my knee again. The... Second time that I tore my ACL was utterly devastating. I was scared. I was depressed. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go through this again. That was what really got to me, was the idea of having to go through the entire process again of surgery, recovery, more recovery. It was tough. It was very tough. I remember feeling a lot of determination. My mindset changed. 
between those three years. When I was 16, it was, okay, let me get back on snow as quick as possible. When I was 19, it was, let me be able to ski when I'm 45. Let me do what I need to do to be preventative and get my body ready in order for me to sustainably do this sport for as long as possible. And I think that was a really good change in my mindset because now my relationship with skiing is very healthy and I don't think about my knee as much because I have so much confidence and so much faith in my body. Sophie's road to recovery hit some literal rough patches along the way. But at 22, she's back on the mountain with many winters of skiing ahead of her. Her story is a great reminder of the physical and emotional toll of sports injuries. And both aspects must be given treatment and care. I'm Zakia Watley, and this is Breakthrough, a podcast from Boston Children's about the ways researchers are pushing the boundaries of what's possible in children's health. Every episode, I talk to some of the world's top researchers about how their work is revolutionizing the future of pediatrics and what that means for children and their families. I also talk to parents and patients who've dealt with unexpected medical challenges. In this episode, we're talking about sports injuries, treatment, prevention, and the psychology of recovery. There are a lot of stories like Sophie's out there. More than 200,000 people in the United States injure their ACL every year. Since this ligament is particularly delicate and any natural healing is limited, repairing it requires surgery, a watchful eye, and months of careful recovery. My first guest is Dr. Martha Murray, who treated Sophie's initial ACL, or anterior cruciate ligament, injury. Traditional ACL repair techniques have worked well and continue to do so, but they often come with the caveat that the athlete will have some restrictions on their activity in order to prevent re-injury. Dr. Murray recently developed a new technique for these surgeries called BEAR. That's B-E-A-R. This technique is less invasive, allowing athletes to feel better sooner. They can get back on the basketball court, soccer pitch, baseball diamond, or in Sophie's case, a black diamond with confidence. Here's my conversation with Dr. Murray. Good morning, Dr. Murray. Good morning. We're really excited to talk to you today. So first, could you tell us what the ACL is and how it functions? So the ACL, or anterior cruciate ligament, is a tissue inside your knee that helps hold the end of your thigh bone to the top of your shin bone. It basically keeps the knee stable, especially for activities when you're running and changing direction, or we call it cutting or pivoting. I'm interested in how you became the ACL specialist. How did you initially get into ACL injuries? So I trained as an engineer, and I was in grad school for material science and engineering, And actually, I was at a party one night, and a friend I knew came in on crutches, and I said, oh my gosh, what happened to you? Are you okay? Oh, I tore my ACL. And he was a medical student. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, so are they going to go in and sew it back together? And he was like, you stupid engineer, you can't sew the ACL back together. They've got to take a graft out of the back of my leg and put it through bone tunnels and, you know, secure it in place with screws, and then I'm on crutches for a while, and da, 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 da. And I just thought to myself, that seems kind of excessive. Why, Why do we do that? There are other things in the body that heal fine, you know, with stitches or without anything. And why is the ACL not healing? And I just got very curious about it. So I spent 
pretty much every spare minute I had of the next six months in the medical school library, just trying to read all I could about the ACL and why didn't it heal. And what I found was that nobody really knew why. They knew the repairs didn't really work. And I just thought, this is something that would be really fun to figure out because then maybe we could do something about it and people could keep their own ACL instead of having to have this ACL reconstruction type procedure. I've never been to a party and had (laughs) a moment like that. (laughs) I love it, though. People hear about ACL tears all the time. What, What happens? What's causing these tears? So the ACL typically will tear when a patient does a cutting or pivoting type activity, and often they're surprised in the act of doing it so they don't have total control over their leg. That's the most common time that an ACL will tear. And what types of sports do we see a higher occurrence of ACL tears? So those would be sports like soccer or basketball, things where you're running and have to suddenly change direction. If you play soccer all year around, you're going to have a higher risk of tearing your ACL than if you, say, ran cross country in the fall and then swam in the winter and then played soccer in the spring. I think even if you just look at it from an exposure standpoint. We're going to talk about your bear technique as we move on a little bit more. But before we get to that, I'd like to get a better understanding of over time what the treatment or repair options have been for ACL tears. Sure. So back in the 1970s, the initial surgery that was performed was called a primary repair. You go into the knee, you take a look at the torn ends and you sew them back together with sutures, just like you could sew any other tissue back together. And that was the procedure that was done probably for the next decade or so. However, there were studies that came out that then showed that that procedure was really not better than non-operative treatment. And so people tried to do a stronger type of repair where they would do the repair with the sutures, but then would also add in another band of tissue to support the repaired tissue while it was healing kind of a tomato steak type procedure. And then eventually over time, surgeons dropped the repair piece altogether in favor of just a larger graft across the knee. You can take that graft from the front of the knee or the back of the knee, other places in the knee, and you can put that graft of tissue through holes in the bones, both in the femur and the tibia, the shin bone and the thigh bone, Mm -hmm. and then secure it in place to actually replace the ACL. And that's what an ACL reconstruction is. So that's where we were before you came in. But how do we get to the BEAR technique? And first, what does it stand for? So BEAR stands for Bridge Enhanced ACL Restoration. So bridge being the scaffold that we put in there that's holding the blood. So we've added a bridge between the torn ends of the ligament and enhanced the potential for restoration of the ACL itself. So you're in graduate school and you have this continued interest in why ACL repairs aren't super effective. What's the next step? So the first thing was I left graduate school and went to medical school because in graduate school, there was no biomedical engineering at that time. Every chance I had, I just would study another part of the problem. So when I went to medical school the first summer, I looked at, okay, well, maybe the cells are behaving badly. So let's grow some ACL cells and grow some MCL cells. The MCL or medial collateral ligament is another ligament of the knee that heals fine in a brace. Where do those two tissues differ? What's happening in one that's not happening in the other? Bit by bit, we did experiments to test different theories about why didn't the ACL heal. And really what we found over the next few years was that the cells were working and doing exactly what they should be doing. They looked very much like the MCL cells after an injury. They would crawl out onto a scaffold. They would make collagen, which is the protein that ligaments are made of. They did everything right. What it turned out was it was the environment that they were in. So in the medial collateral ligament, when it tears... The ends bleed, and that blood coagulates between the torn ends of the ligament to form a scaffold that the cells in the tissue can crawl into and remodel and make into a healed ligament. 
In contrast, in the anterior cruciate ligament or the ACL, it tears, the ends bleed, but because it's in the fluid environment of the joint, the blood doesn't clot between the two torn ends of the ligament. So there's no structure for the cells to crawl into to remodel to make a healed ligament. So that's one of the things that we found out in that first probably decade of work. Wonderful. So now we're at Bear. That's right. So once we determined that there was no scaffolding, no material in between the torn ends, then the thought comes, okay, well, what could we put in there that would help stimulate the healing? What would have the right biologic cues that would encourage the cells from the torn tissue to crawl into it? What would have the right structure? So we tested a lot of different types of materials. And what we settled on in the end was it's basically like a sponge that's made out of collagen and other proteins that are normally found in ligaments. They're proteins that ACL cells will recognize and say, oh, I know what these are and be happy to crawl on them. We just take that sponge and we actually add the patient's own blood to the sponge. The sponge can then soak up the blood and then hold the blood in the right spot between those torn ligament ends to allow healing to occur through the sponge. Which part of this is different from the traditional ACL reconstructive surgery? So in a traditional ACL reconstruction, we actually remove the torn ACL ends and replace that with the graft of the new tendon. So you're replacing basically the whole ACL. With the bare technique, you actually leave the torn ACL parts there because we think that they're healthy biologically. Mm -hmm. And then we put the sponge in between those torn ends and combine that with sutures to repair the ligament. But now we've changed that biology in the tear site by adding the patient's blood and holding it in that tear site so it can do its thing and stimulate healing of the ligament, just like a blood clot does in other places in your body. It's just so innovative. I love it. How long ago did you start doing this? And I'm really curious about where you are now in this process. So we started the research in like 1990. Really things started to get going around... Probably 2001, 2002, we started to understand what the reason was for this. Since then, it's been developing this implant and testing it. So we did pretty extensive preclinical testing to make sure that this was going to be safe enough for a first-in-human trial. And we did that in conjunction with the FDA. We opened the first-in-human trial, I think, in 2014. And that was a 20-patient trial. 10 patients had bare compared to 10 patients with ACL reconstruction. And then the next year, we opened up a 100-patient randomized control trial comparing patients who had the bare procedure with those who had an ACL reconstruction. So those two trials, those patients are starting to come in for their six-year visits now for follow-up. Mm -hmm. Now there's the bare three trial, which is enrolling additional patients to study and get more experience with the technique. And then the bare moon trial, which will compare the bare procedure with ACL reconstruction with bone patellar tendon bone autograft. And that's going on nationwide. You're saying six years out, so you're able to keep in touch with these folks and figure out how their lives have changed. You know, what are you seeing? Are there differences between the two groups? The primary outcome for the major study was a two-year time point. And so mm -hmm. that's the data that we currently have. The six-year data we're just collecting now. Okay. But at two years, we did see that the knees were doing just as well in the bare group as they were doing in the ACL reconstruction groups. And that was true both for how patients felt about their knees when they recorded on a survey, how does their knee feel, but also for when we measured how loose the knee was. So how much play there was in the knee after the treatment surgically. Are there different treatment courses for the two? After the surgery, so far we've been using a very similar physical therapy protocol for patients who have ACL reconstruction and who have bare. 
Interestingly, though, the bear patients actually recover muscle strength and their knee feels normal much more quickly than the patients who have a reconstruction, which is not totally surprising because we don't have to take a graft with bear. So the early results at six months or so, the patient reported outcomes and the muscle strength measurements are significantly better already and almost to normal in the bear group where it takes about two years for that to happen for the ACL reconstruction patients. Wow. And so what's your median age for your patients who are undergoing the bear treatment? The randomized control trial was run at Boston Children's Hospital. So the median age in the BEAR-2 trial was 17 years of age, and the median activity score for those patients was also at 16, which is the highest you can get on that score. So that trial was really very young and active patients. Since then, we've opened up the BEAR-3 trial, and that can be performed on patients aged 12 to 80. So we're seeing a very broad range of patients' ages, and it will be very interesting to see if age influences the outcomes. And that's one of the things we're hoping to discover with that trial. What happens when you don't address an ACL tear or you choose not to do surgery? If your knee is unstable because you've torn your ACL, then you're at risk for doing additional damage in the knee if you continue to do things that require planting and pivoting or make your knee go unstable. You can go on to tear your meniscus or get another cartilage injury or some other type of injury in the knee. So you have to be pretty careful and choose your activities carefully because you don't want to have the knee keep going out of joints, so to speak. We like to try to repair these pretty soon after the injury. We don't want to have the end start to resorb and go away. Patients that want to have the bare procedure should have a relatively recent injury, say within the last six or eight weeks or so. With an ACL reconstruction, you don't have that time constraint. You can really have surgery when it's more convenient for you because you're not counting on that tissue that's there to participate in your surgery. We've talked a lot about repairing, but what about prevention? Do you have any recommendations for how athletes can, aside from not pivoting and cutting, better prevent an ACL tear or minimize their chance of re-tearing? Yes, there are several programs out now that have been shown to effectively reduce the risk of sustaining an ACL tear. And and primarily, they focus around strengthening the muscles of both your core, but also your lower extremities. They focus on balance. I think the people that can be most helped by these programs are teenage girls. Teenage girls tend to have a very high risk of tearing their ACL when they're doing even the same sports that teenage boys are. And part of that may be due to the fact that when girls go through puberty, they get a lot taller, but they don't have the right hormonal milieu to actually automatically make their muscles stronger. When boys go through puberty, they get taller, but they also tend to get bigger muscles at the same time to help control those longer lever arms. So the injury prevention programs are especially good for young women who may not automatically develop the muscle and they have to work harder to do so by intentionally doing strengthening work for their lower extremities. So I think that's where we can really see the biggest benefit. Wow. That really hit home. Dr. Murray, thank you so much. Oh, it was great to have the opportunity to talk about this. From her early days as an undergrad, Dr. Martha Murray applied her knowledge of engineering to address a complex health condition that is both mechanical and biological in nature. She is now a world-renowned pioneer of ACL reconstruction. Dr. Murray's bear technique is another demonstration that Boston Children's continues to be a site of groundbreaking research. With this procedure now open to the orthopedic market at large, She has opened up possibilities around the world to improve the livelihood of young athletes. My next guest is Dr. Min Coker, 
an orthopedic surgeon and the chief of the sports medicine division at Boston Children's. We just heard about the specifics of one type of injury and the breakthroughs in treatment surrounding it. But we're going to zoom out a little bit. Dr. Coker and I spoke about the prevention methods that are available for young athletes and how their developing bodies, when they're injured, require treatments that are specifically tailored to their age, muscle strength, and other unique characteristics. He also provided a more holistic understanding of the emotional and social elements of becoming injured. He gave insights for parents on how they can help their children avoid injuries and why the no pain, no gain attitude should be kicked to the curb. Take a listen. Dr. Coker, thank you for joining me today on Breakthrough. Thank you so much for having me, Zakia. What are some of the most common sports that lead to the types of injuries you see? We see injuries in general in sort of two types. One it would be overuse types of injuries. And so these are injuries from repetition, things like stress fractures, tendonitis, growth plate issues. And then we see acute injuries. These are more one-time type of injuries like getting tackled or twisting and you tear the ACL in your knee or you dislocate your shoulder. We often see an overuse injury in something like running or someone who's doing a lot of tennis or a sport like that. Acute injuries we'll see more in sports like soccer, basketball, football, those types of sports, although there is some overlap. What would you consider to be one of the most devastating injuries when you consider all of these different factors? I would say some of the most impactful injuries we see are things like ACL tears. We've actually measured the impact on a patient, like the psychosocial impact on an adolescent athlete of getting the diagnosis of tearing their ACL. And it's almost as impactful on these scales as getting the diagnosis of cancer. Mm. Uh, and that seems really kind of perverse uh, at first, right? For an adolescent athlete who's put so much time into their sport and their identity is tied up in their sport and they may have aspirations to play in college or professionally, to get that diagnosis of an ACL tear can be a big, big impact on that patient and their family. Are we seeing more ACL tears? And if we are, is there a single reason or do you think there are multiple reasons that we're seeing them? So we and others have studied the data and from 2000 to 2020, the incidence of ACL injuries in children and adolescents has increased three to fivefold. It is a little bit multifactorial. Kids are maturing earlier and they're bigger than they were. And so that's putting more forces across the joint. Another big part of it is that they are focusing on a single sport at a young age. So they're not getting the benefits of rest of certain muscle groups and certain body movements by doing another sport. They're doing the same pattern four seasons out of the year for a town team, for a club team, for tournaments, et cetera. Finally, like I think the kids just aren't learning fundamental movement patterns. So when I look at injury prevention programs in younger children, it's like a lot of stuff they would have gotten in free play, like core strength, climbing a tree, walking on a balance beam or unexpected movement patterns from playing kick the can. I just I think kids don't have that free play where they learn those movement patterns and that may be contributing to injury as well. Do you see any kind of correlation between really highly competitive athletes or competing at really high levels being tied to burnout in young athletes? Can you spend a little bit of time telling us what burnout 
looks like in young patients that you see? We definitely see burnout in young athletes. And I think many times it's related to early sports specialization. They and their family are almost putting all their eggs in one basket. In general, I think the kids and the parents see early sports specialization as a way to be successful. They see a lot of athletes who started at a very young age and got very good at a sport. And then how that relates to burnout is sometimes when they're injured or sometimes even when they're not injured, because they're specialized and they're so focused on a single sport, they can burn out, meaning they lose interest in that sport. They can lose interest in other activities. I'll often see this in a patient in clinic who I've been seeing for a while and they have an injury they should be getting better from, from physical therapy or bracing, and they're just Mm -hmm. not getting better from it. Having an injury that they're not recovering from is a way they can kind of drop out of the sport. It almost sounds like what you're talking about is you can be psychologically exhausted of whatever sport that you may be hyper-focused on, and that can affect your healing? Absolutely. They're very related, the, the mind and the body. You can have an overuse injury, say like tendonitis or pain around your kneecap, mm-hmm. and you can then do physical therapy, rehab, you can overcome some pain, you can then get back to your sport and activity. But if you are in a place where you're no longer having fun in the sport, the pressure's too much, you're missing out on other social opportunities, you can't get over it. The knee continues to hurt. You can't cope. You don't have that resilience. And so it's very much both the body and the mind in terms of how they're responding to that injury. Have you talked to patients about their mental health when it comes to sports injuries, like when they have these overuse injuries? How how do you incorporate that aspect of therapy almost? On a practical level, it's just asking the question, how are you feeling about this injury? If you don't ask the question, you won't find the answers. And if you do ask the question, it often opens up further conversations. There's lots of practical advice we can give kids, like when they tear their ACL, letting them know that, you know, this is sort of a big psychosocial injury as well. And it's okay to feel bummed and depressed about your injury. But there are ways of handling it. You could stay connected with your team. You could focus your energy into your rehab. You can focus on when you're returning back to sports. You can talk to folks if you're having trouble coping with the injury. In our division of sports medicine, when we see a patient who's saying, yeah, you know, I am actually struggling with this in sort of a bigger way and can't really talk to my friends or my parents, We offer a visit with our sports psychologists, and that can be very helpful. And so what do you recommend for parents to consider as far as being supportive if their child is injured and they've put all of these resources in or they have these expectations, whether they realize they're unreasonable or not? Parents love their kids and they want to do what's best for their kids. I think it's really important to talk to the child about how they feel about their sport. You may have chosen when you were in the fourth grade to focus on this sport, and now you're a very different person in the 10th grade. Is this still something you want to be doing? When they're injured, I think it's important to focus on the long-term health and what's best for the child. So it's not always when can they get back to sports. Sometimes if it's six months, it may actually be better to wait nine months and they get a little stronger before they return to sports. 
And sometimes the answer is maybe not return back to a high risk sport where they've had multiple injuries. Talking to your kids and trying to understand it from their perspective is very helpful because we have a perspective as a parent and we have a lot invested into the sport as well. You know, I can imagine for a parent who wants to do what's best for their child, their advice may be like, suck it up so we can keep moving forward. How do you help kids understand this is painful or this is just what I should expect? Because, you know, it might not be something they've experienced before. I'm, I'm curious about that. In pediatrics, they say child's not a little adult. And in pediatric sports medicine, our point is the child athlete's not a little adult professional athlete. And so we need to think of them differently. And in kids doing sports, no pain, no gain is not really the correct adage. Pain is a sign that something's going on and you should seek attention, whether that's from their pediatrician or whether it's from sports medicine specialists as we have in our division. And now I'm interested in injury prevention methods that you typically suggest, and I'm sure they may be different for different injuries. Prevention is really the key. Say ACL tears. The the majority of ACL surgeries done in this country are actually not in 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, they're in older adolescents, a sort of 16 to 18-year-old is the peak group. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to prevent injuries, like prevent ACL tears, then we have to get to them earlier. We know that injury prevention programs can work and they can decrease the risk of injury. It gets hard logistically because we don't often see the kids until they're injured. And so we treat the injury and then we talk about prevention to avoid re-injury to that knee, for example. And then when we try to do interventions within sports or within teams, you really have to have the buy-in of coaches and of parents. Because when they go out to soccer practices, the coaches want to get going and, and, and start to do soccer drills and, and scrimmaging. They don't want to spend 15 minutes stretching, warming up and, and doing prevention types of exercises. So it's an, important to talk about how valuable that is. And if you're a coach and you're trying to say your, your main goal is to win, prevention is going to help you win because you're keeping your athletes out on the field. Are there other predictors or things that you use in your work to understand risk for kids? Absolutely. So we at the McKaylee Center for Sports Injury Prevention, we do an injury risk assessment. And so we literally take the child or the adolescent and we run them through almost 400 data points to look at factors that can increase their risk for injury. And, and they're so multifactorial. We often see injuries around periods where kids are growing rapidly. And it's almost like the bones are growing faster than the muscles can keep up with. And we see mm. certain injury patterns. Or when kids are growing, their bodies are neuromuscularly, they're out of balance, they're out of coordination. We can look at muscle strength. And so if your muscles, say, for example, your quad muscle is much stronger than your hamstring muscle, that's an imbalance across the knee that puts you at, at risk for certain injuries as well. You're right. This is very multifactorial. There are so many other things at play here. One thing that I really wanted to make sure I mentioned, um, when we talk about injuries in youth sports, in terms of being out of sports, the psychosocial impact that it has on kids and families. There is a tendency to get a little bit negative, like this is resulting in lots of injuries and this is sort of ruining youth sports and, and injuring our kids. But I really think it's important to not lose track 
of the positive benefits of youth sports, which are just so many. Kids and adolescents that are involved in youth sports, they have better overall health, better bone health, better cardiovascular health, better psychosocial health. They have a strong sense of identity. They have a good peer group. They're less likely to get involved in drugs, less likely to have teen pregnancy. They have better career success later in life. They're more Mm -hmm. likely to be active later in life, which helps their health as an adult. They're more likely to then have kids who are active. And the really big picture is, you know, how can we get these incredibly positive benefits of youth sports while we're trying to avoid some of these injuries that we're seeing or treat these injuries that we're seeing better? Thank you for highlighting that, because I do think it is important that we keep that balance, right? It's not all one way. And like you said, injuries are one part of that equation and the work of you and your colleagues, you guys are working to reduce that risk for folks so they can get all the upside uh, on participating in these types of activities. That's right. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Dr. Coker's work is changing the way parents and athletes think about preventative care so that injuries occur less frequently. And when they do, young athletes will understand the importance of healing both physically and mentally. Being a well-rounded athlete as a kid or adolescent isn't easy, especially when there are so many external pressures to specialize. But with efforts like Dr. Coker's and that of the McKaylee Center, kids and their parents are getting more information about how to stay healthy and in the game. Sometimes young people can have a hard time seeing the benefit of rest and full recovery because it feels so urgent to get back on the field or the court. But like Sophie learned, being able to enjoy what you love over your entire lifetime has the best payoff in the end. Here's Sophie, who we heard from at the top of this episode, one more time. I still ski. I love skiing. It's like my favorite activity to do in the entire world. I would say my confidence is fully back now and... That is accredited to changing of my mindset and sort of the confidence that my surgeons gave me. You're building a whole new relationship with your body, literally like building a new map on how to navigate your body. In the end, it's all going to be worth it. All that hard work, it's going to pay off and it's going to make you a better person. And you think that it's the end of the world, but then the sun comes up. And you realize, hey, it's a new day. I can take this one on. Next time on Breakthrough, we'll hear from three doctors on how their work in the Heart Center at Boston Children's is crucial for patients' survival. Anytime you're challenging what the textbooks tell you, it certainly makes you feel uncomfortable. But we did it with a lot of support. And... When I see my patients come back to visit me and tell me that they're doing great, it's an amazing feeling. I I can't even tell you how many birthday parties, graduations, wedding ceremonies now I've been invited to and been able to attend. And it really feels great to be able to be a part of it. These doctors are making it possible for pediatric patients with cardiac conditions to thrive into adulthood. If you enjoyed this episode of Breakthrough, please follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps. See you next time.